All right. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Um, the title for this conference is Supporting uh, Israel and the Jewish Community in a Time of War. I could have made it longer. In a Time of War and Rising Anti-Semitism. Because that's what is going on. You've got a war in the Middle East that threatens to expand and could easily expand. I think, but everything is under the Lord's control. And it, but it could easily expand in the north. There's all these problems with the Yemenites and who are just a front for Iran and many other things. So all of that's going on. So the reason for this, uh, we sort of backed into this because Yorm Edinger was coming in for, for the weekend and had an opportunity to have him. And I said, well, if we're going to have him, maybe we can do a little bit more. He has spoken uh, here before. Some of you may remember we had an Israel Today conference uh, about 2016, and he spoke. And so he's just uh, just marvelous. But the Jewish community has their backs up against the wall in terms of rising anti-Semitism worldwide as well as what is going on in Israel. And so we need to be in prayer for them always, and we need to come to understand some things about what it ultimately means to support Israel and, and, and the Jewish community. So um, as I developed this, the, I thought, well, I'd just gotten to spend some time, some more time with Olivier Melnick at the pre-trip conference. He did an outstanding job with a presentation on, um, on anti-Semitism. And I thought, okay, we can bring him in for Wednesday night. Maybe I just won't do anything on Tuesday night. And then we got into a lot of discussions on um, my Friday morning uh, pastors conference. I have a Zoom meeting. We have anywhere from 30 to 40 uh, pastors, missionaries, students, um, retired pastors who are on that Zoom call. And we have uh, picked a book, I picked a book, by that Mitch Glazer edited called To the Jew First. And it was uh, basically a collection of presentations or papers that had been written on that topic of Romans uh, 1, uh, 16 on to the Jew first. What does that mean? And some of the papers, some of the chapters are of questionable value, and some of them are very significant and very insightful. One of those chapters was one written by Dr. Lanier Burns, and I've known Lanier for about 40 years almost, and he was um, uh, one of my seminary professors, and I hadn't talked to Lanier in about 30 years, so after I read his article, which I thought was quite good, I gave him a call, and we had quite a, a good reunion over over the phone, and he, when I made the comment, some of those articles weren't really that worthwhile, he said, you got that right, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, but that's the way it is with a lot of these books that are collections of papers that have been put together. Some are more significant than others. And one of the papers that really caught my attention was um, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's paper. And that led to some other things. And his paper deals with some of the issues I'm talking about uh, this evening. And so 
this is how it just sort of came together. I decided, well, that needed to be addressed. And I went to the conference in uh, that Friends of Israel encounter group last August and thought, well, I have no idea how I'll ever use any of this material or what I'm ever going to do with any of this. And now, well, now I'm going to be using it quite a bit this week. So it's really important to to go to things like this. You never know how God's going to end up using you. All you have to do is uh, be willing to trust the Lord that he'll figure out a way and we have to be be willing. Now, what I'm going to do tonight, we'll pray in just a minute. But we have a guest with us tonight, and this is Alyssa Ruddle. She is uh, on staff. She's an, uh, are you a Houston representative? Representative to Houston from Friends of Israel. And so at the end, I'm going to have her come up also, and she's going to talk about some things that Friends of Israel has available that, that I think you can benefit from. So before we get started, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord so that as we open his word and talk about the significance of what has been revealed to us, that God will be directing us and God the Holy Spirit can use it for our spiritual growth and our spiritual benefit. So let's bow our heads together and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight, that we can focus on your word and what it teaches about the importance of Jewish evangelism and understanding what that means and coming to grips with perhaps how we should engage in it if we're given the opportunity and uh, on the basis of, of Scripture and on the basis of wisdom. So, Father, we pray for that. We pray for Israel at this time. We pray for their leadership, that they can make wise decisions. We pray for the leadership of the military, all of the different levels, all the way down to uh, company and platoon level and squad level, that they can make wise decisions and implement their training and be disciplined and focused and carry out their mission and completely destroy the efficacy of Hamas and the radicals that are down in Gaza and also protect them as you have so far from uh, any attacks from the north, from others, give our commanders, our U.S. leaders, uh, wisdom to make right decisions in supporting Israel and backing off of uh, trying to micromanage how they conduct a uh, an existential war. And so, Father, we, we pray for them. And, Father, we pray for our Jewish friends in this community who many are fearful because of threats of anti-Semitism that uh, exist not only around the world but here in the United States on college and university campuses where uh, their children or grandchildren are going to school and just pray pray for them and we pray that they might come to understand uh, the real importance of ultimate uh, Judaism which is recognizing Jesus as their Messiah and that that isn't giving up what it means to be Jewish but it is moving to the next level and so Father we pray all of these things in Christ's name Amen 
All right, we're going to start off, open your Bibles to Romans 1.16, Romans 1.16. And I sent Barb a text today that she needs to put a note in the lesson where I taught on Romans 1.16 in the Roman series because I just blew past this phrase as if everybody automatically understood it. I have always been taught and heard that this phrase just referred to the pattern that the Apostle Paul followed when he was uh, carrying out his his uh, missionary trips, and that um, and that was what it meant to the Jew. First he went to the Jews, first he went to the synagogue, and then when they re- rejected the gospel or kicked him out, then he went to the Gentiles. So it's just something something purely historical. And in teaching Romans, when I did some uh, 10 to 15 years ago, I was more focused on getting an understanding of it from uh, understanding the free grace gospel aspect of Romans, which is very, very important. And so I was just kind of oblivious to this. And then I read, um, read this book, read a couple of the other articles, read an article that Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, wrote, and this was back in 2000, and I'm just a blind spot in my thinking. And I, at first, when I when I heard this, I I had questions. I had to go do some work. There were some things that I did not agree with exegetically, but the conclusions I agreed with. And we had a lot of discussion among the pastors because I don't think some pastors had, that are in the group had were like me. They had never heard this view before. And so it was, I thought it was important to, uh, put this into, put this uh, teaching up on the website and into the Roman series. So this phrase to the Jew first is found in Romans 1.16, but it's also found in the next chapter in uh, Romans 2, uh, verse 9 and again in verse 10. So one of the basic hermeneutical issues is that if you find a phrase like that in the same context, then you have to understand it the same way. You can't say that in 116 it means this, and in 2, 9, and 10 it means something different. They, it has to mean the same thing. That's uh, uh, not always true in some things. You can get into some passages in Romans where Paul uses... Uh, certain words with two or three different meanings. You get into 1 Corinthians 2, he uses the word pneuma about five different, with five different meanings, and most people think it's all talking about the Holy Spirit when it's not. Uh, so you have to do your homework. And so that's what I spent a lot of time doing was reading and reading other articles, calling people who are, have, would be more knowledgeable on this particular issue than I and uh, saying, well, what do you think about it? And finding out that this is news to me, but it wasn't news to others. And that they thought this was basically the correct uh, uh, exegetical understanding, basically. So we're going to go through this. First of all, what I want to do is understand what Romans 1, uh, 16 is telling us and why it's significant for understanding Jewish evangelism. And the next thing I want to do from that is just broaden it out to look at how uh, what the Apostle Paul did, did in his practice and what's, why that was significant. 
for understanding this as well, that he wasn't just doing this because it seemed like a good idea at the time or because the Jewish people would have a background in the Old Testament. And so that would be a be a common sense group to begin with. Uh, there was more to it than that. And so uh, then we'll get into some specifics. And this is not going to be a one lesson. There'll be two. I've got more to cover uh, next time. So let's look at Romans one sixteen. And Romans one sixteen, which most people will say is the key to understanding uh, the book of Romans, Romans one sixteen and seventeen. That this is the uh, gives us the the topical structure of the book of Romans, and I think that is true, and that's what I taught uh, when I taught Romans before. But Paul says at this point, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, I want you to notice something and pay attention to this, that in verse 17, he says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, we'll come back to this later on, much later on, and in the some in the weeks to come. But this word righteousness is extremely important. I have just written a tract. The idea for this came to me in a conversation with a Jewish friend many years ago. And uh, when I was asked the question, well, how were Jews saved in the Old Testament? Were they saved by the Abrahamic covenant, saved by the Mosaic covenant? Did, were those covenants important for salvation? And I thought, how in the world am I going to address this? Now, in conversations with some other uh, Jewish people, somebody rang a doorbell. So y'all don't run into each other when you're trying to get to the door. Thank you. Um, so when we get to, um, where was I? Uh, so anyway, so I was having a conversation with a Jewish friend many years ago that, that where this issue of good works came up. And in, in Judaism, in modern Judaism, we, we have to distinguish between biblical Judaism that existed uh, on the basis of biblical truth in the Old Testament and modern rabbinical Judaism uh, which came along in um, and began in um, about 90 A.D. and the development of rabbinical Judaism. So one of the key words is tzedakah, and that's the Hebrew word for righteousness. And this is very, very key. So I got to thinking about that, and I said, well, the issue is how is a person made righteous? And I started off by going to Genesis 15:6. In Genesis 15:6, we read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so then I went to Isaiah 64:6 that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And then I began to work through different passages, all of which use the word tzedakah. And that's the idea. So here we are talking about in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul, by using that phrase here coming out of 116, is, is talking the language 
of the Jews because their focus is on righteousness, but it's a righteousness by works. That's why it says in other places like Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. So this is a very important concept, but we'll come back to that, so don't forget that. So 116 is really the key for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That's your, that's your main clause. We're going to get into a little grammar and structure because it's very important here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then we have an explanatory sentence. Whenever we see the word for in English, about nine times out of ten, the Greek word is a word gar, which means that it's giving an explanation for the previous statement. So the explanation is, why am I not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it, that is the gospel, is the power of God. Now I'm going to stop there, because there's your, your, your main clause in this uh, causal statement. Your, your explanatory statement. The gospel is the power of God. Now, the verb there is very important. And we have to wonder what is, is. Because there's a lot of ways to understand this. And there's gra- grammatical ways. It's a present active indicative. People go, well, what does that mean? Well, it's a present tense, which means that it usually emphasizes continuous action. But what kind of continuous action? Okay, you can have a nar- what they call a narrow band present, which is just something you're doing right now. Like, like you could ask somebody, well, you bring me that hymnal. Well, you use present tense, and that's just something that we're going to do right now. Or you could have a little broader uh, band uh, present tense where you talk about Read your Bible every day. That'd be a present active indicative, but you're talking about something that extends over a large, larger period of time. And then if you're talking about something that is really a universal principle, you would also use a present tense. But that's, that's like just a general, if you, if you're diagramming these, the first one would be a line that's this long. Second one would be, be a line this long. There's a couple of other uh, nuances that are a little bit longer lines, but a gnomic would be a universal principle. It's just a flat line all the way out, never stops. It's stating something that is always true. So you say, well, why, why isn't this something that is just historical? Because the gospel is always the power of God. We have to remember that in the grammar here. The God, whatever else we say, it has to be a universal principle because of the nature of this statement. The gospel is the power of God forever and ever. And grammatically what we have is a, uh, a purpose clause to salvation for everyone who believes. That's all one statement. So to, every, to salvation for everyone who believes... And that understanding that has to be subordinated to the fact that this is a universal principle in the word is. It's a it's what's called a nomic present. Nomic just means it's a universal uh, standard principle. So the gospel is the power of God always. Wherever you are, the gospel is always the power of God. And it's always the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Right? 
That's not just talking about the power of God to everyone who believed when Paul was going to the synagogue. It's not just talking about it being the power of God to all those who believe in the first century in the apostolic era. That's talking about the fact that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, period. That's a universal principle, and part of that universal principle is that it's for everyone who believes, and then grammatically, the phrase for the Jew first is the way it's structured in the, in the, in the grammar. It is both, it should be literally translated both the Jew first and the Greek. So you can't break this down and say, when you get to, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that this was referring to something that happened in Paul's lifetime with Paul's procedure in the history because it's embedded in a phrase with a nomic verb. That means he is making a statement that this principle of to the Jew first and also to the Greek wasn't something that he had done, but it's talking about this is a principle for the whole rest of time. There's a priority to Jewishness. Now, let's break this down a little bit. So the thing we're looking at is that explanatory clause. So we're not going to deal with the first part of the verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but just this part of the verse. For it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So this is where we're where we're focused. Now, I'm going to... I'm not going to diagram it. That would bore you to death. So what we're going to do is, um, I had a, in fact, it has to be, a, it happens to be a Jewish friend, but he was a friend, had COVID a couple of weeks ago, but he didn't really have any symptoms. And he got so bored that he decided to go through and reorganize his filing system. Have you ever been that bored? I have never been that bored. Okay. So we're not going to talk about diagramming, but this is what I call phrasing a verse. And it's very helpful when you're trying to break down some of Paul's long sentences to get an idea of the structure of thought. So you, I set the four apart at the top, and it's saying an, an explanation. So the explanation, the main idea is the gospel is the power of God. Now, what do you think he means by gospel? Most people think that when you see the word gospel, it means believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll have eternal life. They think about the gospel as the good news related to the message of justification by faith alone. But the word gospel refers to the good news of the entirety of the Christian life that ends up in heaven before the throne of God. It's a broad concept. It's not just the good news of how to get to heaven when you die. It's the good news that you have a new life in Christ and that Jesus said that I didn't come like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. See, that's the good news. It's not just your, it's not just fire insurance. It's life insurance. That's an old saying. It's the whole package. And that's how Paul uses it in Romans. Now, you're going to say, well, how do you know that? Well, 
we'll see that in the next in the next um, phrase. So the gospel is the power of God. Everything related from the moment you are regenerated till you're face to face with God in heaven and you're rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ and you're going on into uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, as John Newton put it. So it's the power of God, but for what purpose? And this is indicated because in the Greek you have a preposition called ace, E-I-S, and that indicates a purpose. So the purpose is for the purpose of salvation for everyone who believes. Really. So you say, Robbie, you got gospel. That's how to get to heaven when you die. You've got the word salvation. See, that's getting saved. So you're going to go to heaven when you die. But you have to exegete words in their context, not just their narrow context. You have to understand these words in the whole context here. And so what we see when we look at this word salvation in Romans. Now, this isn't true in, in, um, in Ephesians, and it's not true in Philippians. But in the way Paul uses words, because at the beginning of Romans, he's trying to help people understand what justification by faith is. That's chapter 3 and chapter 4. And then he connects that to reconciliation. But, see, those are more specific words for what happens when you believe in Christ. And he doesn't use the word salvation for that because he's trying to talk about the more precise terms. He uses salvation to to refer to either the Christian life or when we're in heaven or the third usage is the physical deliverance of Israel at the end of the tribulation. That's in Romans chapter 11. So salvation is never used in Romans as a synonym for justification or reconciliation but it is used for phase two and phase three and the physical deliverance of Israel at the second coming. So somebody's going to say, well, what are you talking about phase one, phase two, phase three? So phase one is at the cross. At the cross, you understand Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. He paid the penalty for everyone's sins on the cross. That's Colossians 2, 12 to 14. Everything was nailed to the cross, so we all have... That legal forgiveness, the penalties canceled in, in this, in that sense. It's a legal basis. But I told you, as I told you on Sunday, you don't get saved because Christ paid the penalty for your sins because you're still spiritually dead and you still lack righteousness. You have to believe in Christ. And then at that instant that you believe in Christ, God is going to impute to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ and declare you to be righteous. And at the same time, you are regenerated, you are born again, you're given new life. So justification solves the problem of our lack of righteousness and regeneration solves the problem of our spiritual death. But what Jesus did on the cross solved the problem of the penalty of sin, the legal penalty of sin. So in one instant of time you hear the good news about the cross that Christ died for your sins and offers you forgiveness offers you eternal life offers you justification all of those different terms it can be one or more and you believe it you say I believe that's true 
At that instant, you are saved. You're given new life. You're declared just, justified. God declares you righteous on the basis of your now, of the fact that now you possess the righteousness of Christ. So that's being saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is related to your spiritual life, and then phase three is related to glorification. So we have the word saved, and in some passages it, it relates to being saved from the penalty of sin. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You have been. It's completed action. That's phase one. Phase two is when you're saved from the power of sin. You are being saved from sin. You're being saved as we grow spiritually. We are being delivered from the power of sin. That power is broken, but not removed. It's The tyranny of the sin nature is broken. That's Romans 6. And the result of that is that we now have a choice to put ourselves back in bondage to the sin nature or to go forward in spiritual growth. And the third use is being saved from the presence of sin. Uh, you will be saved. And that, that we find this in, in Romans chapter 5 where Paul says, You have been justified and you will be, future tense, saved. So it's talking about the fact that you were justified here when you trusted Christ as Savior, and when you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, you will be saved. You will be delivered from your sin nature. So this is what we see here. For the gospel, a broad sense, the good news of the entirety of the Christian life from birth to being transformed into the presence of God, the gospel is the power of God Second, for the purpose of salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation is phase two, phase three. So he's talking about spiritual growth, spiritual development to deliverance, and that's all, it's a, it's a packed word with lots of meaning. And so we ask the question, well, who are the everyone who believe? Well, that's explained in the next phrase. It's an, ap- uh, it's an appositional phrase. To the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's, that defines everyone who believes. And there's only two types of unbelievers on the planet. Jews and Gentiles. That's it. There's no third un- type of unbeliever. So that covers everybody. But it's to the Jew first. Now, what does that mean when it says to the Jew first? Now, the way a lot of us have heard this is that this is just talking about the historical way in which Paul went about uh, giving the gospel. He would go into a town. He would go to the synagogue. He would teach. They would kick him out. And then he would uh, start a church with some Jews and some Gentiles. And he'd go the next time and always started at the synagogue. Uh, There's a problem with that. Because when you look at the verse, I pointed it out, if the gospel is the power of God, then it is always the power of God. This is just, it didn't say the gospel was the power of God. It's a present tense. It goes on. So this is stating a universal principle. So it is true that the word that is translated first can mean being first in a sequence or inclusive of time. So this would be, this was in the past. But what 
a lot of exegetes miss because of the minor differences in spelling. The word that is used here is protos. Now, in the text, it's proton, and what this is is an adverb. It's not an adjective. It's not a noun. It's modifying and related to a verb which is up here. Okay? And it has to do the adverb according to the major Greek lexicon. I could go through a whole list of them because everybody has this. The adverb proton is of degree. It means in the first place, above all, or especially. Now I'll choose to translate it especially because it indicates that there's a priority here that is being uh, that is being talked about, and it, that relates to the Jew first, and there's a priority there. So we also see this idea in the same word. See, this is a word that is important not only for Romans one sixteen, but for Matthew six thirty three, and we're going to see it in a couple of other passages. And in every one of these passages, it's an adverb indicating priority. In the Sermon on the Mount, now remember Jesus is not is talking to his disciples only, according to Matthew. He took his disciples and went up on the mountain. He's talking to them as believers, and he's the message in the first part of his ministry was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then they rejected his message. They rejected him as Messiah, as the Messianic king, and so the kingdom was postponed. But this is in the early stage, so we have to interpret it within the early stage. And he's telling his disciples that there's a priority. You put your focus on the kingdom of God, and God's going to take care of all of these other things. That's why when he sent them out in Matthew 10, he said, you know, just take a robe and your staff, and that's it. People will take care. God will provide, and they'll give you food, and they'll take care of you, and you won't miss out on anything. He's giving them a a, a teaching lesson on seek first, that's your priority. Seek first uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what we see here is how we're going to understand this in Romans 1. So one way to emphasize the significance of both the use of proton as a, as a priority word and the word estin, which is the word for is, would be to paraphrase 116 like this. As long as the gospel is the power of God, how long will that be? Forever and ever. As long as the gospel is the power of God for salvation, it is especially so to the Jewish people and also to the Gentiles. That is how one person uh, in a scholarly article translated it. I would translate it a little bit like this. For thus the good news is always the power of God, for the purpose of the deliverance of all who believe. That is, it is especially so to the Jewish people and also to the Gentiles. See, what happens in history is that as the Jewish Gentile church, where Jew and Gentile came together and worshiped together, remember they didn't have Sunday Sundays holidays. They had to work, so they'd usually meet early in the morning or late at night. So in the early church, up until probably the end 
of the first uh, of the second century. So when you get to about 200 to 230, there's a split that occurs, and you be- see the roots of Christian anti-Semitism rear their l- ugly head, and um, it, it's a sin to Judaize. Okay, and they were saying you know, if you had unleavened bread, you were Judaizing, and all kinds of other things. That if you talked about, uh, you know, the Jewish backgrounds, basically, and so this split occurred, and so for for the next fifteen hundred years, Gentiles had no idea what certain things were happening in the Gospels because they didn't understand Jewish history, they didn't understand. Uh, that Jesus was a uh, counterpoint to certain pharisaical traditions, and they didn't have a clue. They didn't know anything about Jewish backgrounds. Fortunately, over the last uh, 400 years, uh, a lot has been done in that area, especially in the last 150 years. So uh, we go back to Matthew 28, 19 and 20, which is translated, Go Therefore... And make disciples of all nations. All nations. For many centuries in Christianity, it was read like there was an exception there. Make disciples of all the nations except the Jews. And that was a result of Christian anti-Semitism. So evangelism of the Jews was just excluded. And in, in its place was hatred and persecution of the Jews for being Jews. And that run, that runs deeply and silently through the psyche of every Jew you know. And every time you talk to them, that's an issue. There's two things that are always there that are a hindrance to you talk to you or me talking to a Jewish person about God and about the scriptures and about the Bible. The first is the horrible history of Christian anti Semitism and the second is the Holocaust. And there's a big question there. How could a good God, how can a God who said we're his chosen people allow six million people to be murdered by the Nazis in World War II? Now, we're getting further and further away from World War II, and so with uh, the, that, that question is not as prominent with younger people in the Jewish community as it is with older people in the Jewish community. And so that's something that eventually you have to, be able to talk about with somebody because that may be a roadblock to even having a discussion about about anything related to uh, religion or, or Moses or the Bible or anything or anything like that. And unfortunately, what we've seen in in a lot of Christianity is that that well, Paul went to the Jewish community back in the first century and they rejected it, so we just go off and go to the Gentiles now. And they, they functionally ignore the Jews and say, well, they'll get there. And one of the pernicious errors today comes out of a lot of well-meaning Christian Zionists or pro-Israel Christians. And that is, well, we love our Jewish people. They're so devout. They love God. They love the, the Old Testament God's going to save them on the basis of the Mosaic Law or on the basis of the Abrahamic Covenant, and he saves Gentiles on the basis of the cross. That view is called the double covenant view. Now, John Hagee, who is 
the founder of Christians United for Israel, other, otherwise referred to as Kufi, uh, is in print with that position. And I'm going to give him fair, fair, uh, you know, a fair treatment here. At, he spoke at the pre-trib uh, banquet probably 10 years ago and denied that he believed that. So I don't know. Was he just saying that or not? I don't know. But he just, in about three sentences, he just dismissed it. So I don't know, but it's out there. And uh, several years ago, probably 10 years ago, around that same time, I was uh, I got an email from a Jewish friend who was at a family reunion, and her cousin is a Messianic Jew. And she texts me. Uh, it was real interesting with her because when not long after I met her, she was out jogging with a friend of hers who wasn't Jewish. And, um, and she made a comment about, well, this pastor I know, evangelical pastor I know, and her friends just stopped right there in the jogging trail and said, You've got a friend that's a Jew, that's a that's an evangelical pastor. What's his name? She said his name's Robbie Dean. And this woman just sort of screamed and said, "Robbie Dean married my husband and me at Baraka Church ten years ago." <laughs> it's a small world. But she emailed me and said, "My cousin said all this and said that that Hagee has a double covenant view of salvation. What does that mean, Robbie?" So I went to my notes on covenants, and I cut and pasted definitions and Bible verses, but I changed the Bible verses to the Tanakh, which is the Jewish Bible, and so that they'd be, she'd be reading them in that. And I put all this together, and I went through the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the land covenant and the new, co- new covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant. And about 20 minutes later, I got an email, and she said, that was fascinating, but I think you left something out when you were telling, talking about the New Covenant because uh, it just started off uh, wrong. Something was missing. And I went back and looked, and I'd left, I went to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and I had in my copying, I had left out Jeremiah 31, which says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I left out verse 31. So it didn't make sense what I put. So I put that together and it all made sense. And she said, so were Jews saved by the Abrahamic covenant? I said, no. And it went on. She said, well, how were they saved? And that's when I developed the righteousness approach to helping her understand how Jews were saved in the Old Testament, going to Genesis 15, 6, just like Paul did in Romans 4. So, and, and you know, she spent lots of time, what I have learned being around unsaved Jews is they will talk and ask questions for years and they'll love to talk about it and some of them eventually turn turn the corner and some of them don't I remember being at a promotion party for a friend of mine when he made lieutenant colonel and there was a guy there who was complaining. He no longer went to the church we were from, and he was complaining about, oh, all those people, they ne- they're never interested in evangelism. And he was grousing about that. And I turned around and I said, I want you to listen to me. This guy's a full colonel in the Marine Corps. I said, there's about 25 people here who are Christians, and there's one Jewish person. 
24 of the people in this room have witnessed to that Jewish person. One person hasn't ever talked to him, and that's you. So I don't want to hear any more of your garbage. So, but that person that they were witnessing to was at every party, and I talked to him for years. He's never going to, he just had, there was just this intellectual stimulation. So you can't, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But that, that's important. So the next question that we need to address based on Romans 1.16 is what is the place of Israel in the outreach of the church? Now, there are some, I think, who are a little extreme, and they say, when you start a church, the very first missionary you should support should be a missionary to the Jews. I don't think that's what this is saying when it talks about priority. So we have to address this a little bit. What do we mean by priority? According to Webster's Dictionary, the first meaning is the fact or condition of being regarded as more important. Second definition was something given or meriting attention before competing alternatives. Pay attention to that. That's how most people think of a priority. Priority means I always have to do that first and I can't do anything else until I've done that. But the first one is more more significant. The factor condition of being regarded as more important. Now let me give you a little illustration. Last week was a really busy week for me. I had a doctor's appointment and I had a number of unexpected interruptions and a lot of things, important things I had to do. And my daily routine is that I get up, I get a cup of coffee and a protein shake, and I go sit down and I read my Bible. I read through three or four different devotional things, and I have my prayer. That's the most important thing in my day. I didn't do that for four days last week. Did I mess up my priorities? No, it's still my priority. But there are some things that happen in life that are incredibly urgent. You have to get them done today or there will be problems. And I had several things like that going on last week. So we all have our priorities and a priority doesn't mean it's always the most important thing you do every day. Sometimes you don't get to your most important things for three or four days because there are other things that are more important. But you can't, there's one guy that wrote a pamphlet years ago called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And most people live under the tyranny of the urgent, and they never manage to get back to really living day to day on the basis of their priorities. But priorities are just that. They're the most important thing, but they're not necessarily the first thing you get to. So we have to understand something about what we mean by a priority. And what Romans 1.16 is saying is priority is that we are to be giving the gospel to those in the Jewish community that have not trusted in Yeshua as their Messiah. Now, there's some other things I want to point out here that also uh, set the stage for our understanding of Romans 1.16, and that is in, in the context. 
Now, the more I have read and studied Romans over the last 40 years, the more I recognize that Israel and God's plan for Israel is not something that's only talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, but that it runs through all of the chapters. For example, in Romans uh, chapters 1, verses 2 and 3, uh, there's a significant reference to uh, to the Jewish people. We're not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to quickly summarize them because we don't have time to go through them all. And there Paul says, which he promised, talking about the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Old Te- Jewish Old Testament, which he promised before through his prophets in the Old Testament concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So you have a relationship to Jewishness there. In explaining his eagerness to uh, preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek, look at the context, Romans 1.15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And then he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first. So when he goes to Rome, he's going to be taking it to the, the Jews in Rome first. That's right there in uh, in the context. When we get down to Romans 2, 8 through 10, 9 and 10 both talk about to the Jew first, same phrase as in 116. And there he's talking about uh, God's divine discipline in time, in history. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath... Wrath is not a term in the Bible for the lake of fire and future punishment. It is God's judgment during time, during history on mankind for their disobedience to him. So you have in verse 9, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. That's happening in history to the Jew first and also the Greek. You can't restrict that to history. That this is a timeless principle. And we look at the Jews out under the fifth cycle of discipline scattered around the world until they call for Jesus at the end of the tribulation period. That's what it's going to be. They're consistently going through the divine discipline for uh, their uh, rejection of God's Savior. And he'll bring them back. And then, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good. So if you're a believer, it is to the Jew first, all through this same time period, and also to the to the Greek. So you see, you have to be consistent. Verses 9 and 10 have to be interpreted the same way you interpret the phrase in 116. Rome, then you get on uh, further on, and um, when you get down to... Um, Let me see. When you get down to chapters nine through 11, or chapter four, it goes to righteousness. He goes to Abraham, imputation of righteousness by faith with Abraham. Then he goes to the conclusion in Romans nine through eleven, and then he comes to the end of Romans, and he says, "Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy." So he ties it, he, the Jews run all the way through through Romans. Now, all of this goes back to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant 
uh, is described or summarized at the opening of Abraham's narrative in Genesis 12, 1 to, 2, 1 to 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your father's country, uh, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, first part of the promise. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. God, that's a mandate. He, he's not saying, predicting it, this will happen, you'll, meet, you'll be this way. He's telling them to do this. You will be a great blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those. Uh, actually, it's I will harshly judge those who treat you disrespectfully. There's two different words translated curse there. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant which talks about a promise of land, a promise of seed or descendants, and a promise of eternal blessing. These are further developed in the Israel land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. But what's key there is he says, I will bless those who bless you. What is the greatest way that you and I as believers can bless a Jewish person? Is to help them to understand that Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua, and, you know, one of the things I've learned, it's it's a little bit, uh, it rubs them the wrong way to always talk about Jesus Christ. Number one, most of them think Christ is his last name. That Mary, Mary Christ and Joseph, Mary, Mary married Joseph Christ, and they had a son, and his, so his name's Jesus Christ. Uh, they need to understand that Christos means, is the Greek for Messiah, Mashiach. So it's helpful if you talk about the Messiah and Jesus is Yeshua HaMashiach and use language they're familiar with. And, um, and that's the greatest blessing we can be, but we have to be, uh, we have to be trained to understand how to, how to do this. So we go to Paul's practice. I'm going to skip through this because I, I want to get to a couple of practical things at the end. So in, Acts 13.5, he goes to Salamis, which is in south-central Turkey. Uh, They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And when they departed from Pergam, verse 14, um, they came to Antioch. I may have mistaken. Salamis may be down in Crete. I hadn't looked at that in a while. Um, They also had John as their assistant. But when they departed Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, that's south-central Turkey, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So it's Sabbath, and they go in and they sit down, waiting for the opportunity to be invited to speak. Just follow protocol. They're not going to just butt in. Well, what's interesting is on verse 44, it says, On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things concerning by, concerned by Paul. They had a hissy fit. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary. Now notice that. That is a really important word. It is, a, it is not a, another word that is often used. It is a very precise word. On a chaos, which means it was absolutely necessary. There was a need that had to be filled. And he is saying it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Guess what word is used for first? Prototh. Priority. 
It was a priority that we speak to you first. It was necessary according to our priorities. That's what he's saying in Romans 1, 16 and 17. This ties it together, saying that this wasn't just something Paul chose to do because he thought it was a good idea, but it indicates some sort of divine perspective on the importance of Jewish evangelism. Then you get to the next chapter. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and Greeks, believed. Just because they got rejected in the other places didn't stop him. In Romans 11 12, we're told that if the Jewish fall is riches for the world, then their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So I want to skip a couple of things there. Why must we reach out to the Jewish people? I've got five points. First, God still loves Israel and has not rejected him. In Romans 11 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. He states it in a very strong negative. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice he's a Christian, but he hasn't lost his Jewishness. In the Jewish community, it's bad to use the word convert when you talk to them because that has the connotation that they have to give up being Jewish. I had a rabbi tell me recently, you're either Jewish or Christian. When you, If a Jewish person becomes Christian, they're no longer Jewish. Well, that's not what what the Bible teaches, but that's what is taught by uh, rabbinical theology. So he still focuses, he does the same thing, the passage we're studying in Philippians on Thursday night. So second, we're told in Romans 11, a remnant of Israel will believe. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. We don't know how many that is, but there is a segment. In fact, the remnant sometimes in the Old Testament wasn't very large. Third, the body of Christ is not complete without the believing remnant of Israel. 1 Corinthians 12.13 talks about the baptism by the Spirit. For by one Spirit we were all, past tense, it all occurs at salvation, We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, because now we all come together. That's what Ephesians 2, 14 to 17 is. That talks about Christ. He himself is our peace, Jew and Gentile. Now we're being brought together as one, who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. There's not a double covenant. We're all saved by trusting Christ as Savior. And that's the whole focus of 2, 14 through 17. The fourth point is it is not Israel's lineage or chosen status that guarantees individual salvation. It's not the descent from Abraham. Like everyone else, Jewish people cannot be saved unless they hear and believe the gospel. Matthew 3, 8, and 9 says, therefore, this is John the Baptist, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to ourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And Acts fifteen eleven. but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. We Gentiles are saved in the same manner as they, that is the Jews, Romans 1.16. Um, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And Acts 4.12, Peter, talking to his Jewish audience, 
about three or four days after the day of Pentecost, says, nor is there salvation in any other, not in Abraham, not in Moses, not in David. There is not salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So what happens? Well, first of all, we have to prepare. Like foreign missionaries, you have to be trained. We have to be trained. We have to come to understand these people in the Jewish community. We have to understand who they are, how they think, what their objections are, what they have been, uh, in some cases, almost brainwashed to think about Christians so that we can communicate effectively. A lot of people just go in there like like a Jewish person is just like a Gentile person. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes it's not. And you go in there like a bull in a china closet and shoot them with your gospel gun. You've done more harm than good. So we have to understand who we're talking to. We have to become friends with them, real friends. I had a Jewish friend told me, he said, if I ever think that I, you're, you're my friend just so you can tell me about Jesus, then we'll, that will end the friendship. I have friends that... They'll be friends till the day they die, and then I will grieve like those who have no hope if they haven't trusted Christ. We have to be patient. You can't just run in there. You may take two or three years of conversations off and on just to finally establish one point, just to take one step. It's slow, and you have to be patient. You can't, you can't run ahead. You have to take time to build a friendship, develop trust, and so that there willing to not to talk to you and not be threatened. We have to recognize that centuries of bad behavior on the part of Christians from Christian anti-Semitism. Remember, most Jews think Hitler was a good Christian. Now think about that a lot. That Christianity produced the Nazis. Because much of the liberal Protestant establishment in Germany became Nazis. So we have all that baggage to overcome. Forced conversions like in Spain after uh, in the late 15th century and early 16th century. Uh, not being their friend. People, Christians look at Jews like an t- evangelism target. As instead of just being a friend. Much else has created a wall between Christian and Jew. So you have to address that first. Third, we must understand that modern Judaism is not biblical Judaism. It's a rabbinical Judaism, which is not doesn't have anything to do with the Old Testament. Most of the time, they've never read the Old Testament. The Talmud is a collection of rabbinical commentaries on various biblical themes. It's really a commentary on the Mishnah. It's 18 volumes in English. Rabbinical seminaries primarily teach the Talmud, not the Bible. So you can, you, when we were talking to a rabbi, when we were uh, at the Kavad uh, Library up in um, up in Brooklyn, uh, the, the, the rabbi made about four or five biblical errors. Adam and Eve had children in the garden. What? They don't read the Old Testament. They don't know it. Remember Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof? And he talks about tradition. That's what it's all about. Tradition. Jewish tradition. Fourth, 
we must understand their background and terminology. There's four branches, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, and Reconstructionist. And then about 90% of them are just secular, atheist, agnostics. Maybe more. They don't believe in God, a Messiah, or the Torah. Fifth, we must understand that the majority of Jewish people today affirm their Jewish identity as sort of a cultural thing by observing the, some of the Jewish holidays and by supporting the state of Israel. But they have no religious convictions. But they think that if you mean convert to Christianity, they have to give up all that. That is deeply ingrained in their thinking. Sixth, we should recognize that the majority of Jewish people do not object to the gospel because they have searched the scriptures and found the claims of Jesus to be false. They've never investigated it. They haven't even read the Torah, much less the Gospels. They just know that if they become a Christian, that they'll be ostracized by their friends and family. They'll be kicked out of everything they love, and they'll have to give up being all of the fun things they know about Judaism. So that has to be dressed. So they have rejected the gospel for all kinds of other reasons. So we have some ideas on presenting the gospel. And one way is just to ask questions. Ask a lot of questions when you get a chance. Say, well, yeah, I'm curious about these holidays. What do they represent? What does, it mean? What does Yom Kippur mean? Where do you get your understanding out of the Bible? Show me where, where that is. They're going to, what? You know, just ask questions. And uh, read some things. Uh, you can um, give people, a, uh, explain a track to them, use it. I've got one that will get this one I'm talk- I've been talking about printed. But right now I want to stop, and we'll come back to this and review it next time. But uh, Alyssa, I asked Alyssa to come, and I'm, I've gone on longer than I thought. And I want her to come up and talk a little bit about Friends of Israel and just some of the tools. They have training classes For example, um, on Thursday nights, which is a bad night, but if you sign up for a course, you can get the recordings later, right? I've never been able to find them later, but then I've run out of time and haven't looked. But um, Randy Price is going to do one starting in mid-March on biblical archaeology. Randy's going to be here as a keynote speaker at the Chafer Conference next month. So come on up and tell us some things that you have used the uh, handheld there. Hello, everyone. How are y'all? Good. Like you said, my name is Alyssa Ruddle, and I'm a field representative with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. So just a little bit of background. I know many of you are familiar with it, just so we're all on the same page. Is Our goal, we are an evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. So that's what we're about. And now that we have all this great biblical backing for loving Israel and the Jewish people, we want to help you know what do we do with that? How do we put feet to what we know? How do we love them from a genuine place? And so we have a lot of different opportunities for that. Like you said, basically all of them are free for you guys. Um, We have three programs throughout the year called Bridges, and that is 
to build bridges to overcome the walls and barriers that we have in between building those friendships. And so that is a nine, ten week course that talks about modern Judaism, sharing the gospel from Jewish perspective from the Old Testament scriptures, which are valid, just like the New Testament, but it can help the Jewish people feel more comfortable and understand it from their background. And so we talk about anti-Semitism, all these things. You meet once a week. It's free online. They give you a bunch of resources, time to discuss, ask questions. So one of those is starting beginning of April. You're welcome to go to, I have some brochures if you want to look into that, or you can just go to foi.org slash bridges to look into that as well. And what um, Robbie Dean was talking about was our equip classes. Those are throughout the year. They cover different things like biblical archaeology. There's one starting this week on Ezekiel 37, you know, with the dry bones coming to life. So we cover lots of different things. They're very fun. Um, and it's a group thing, so you can always ask questions. And it's just a great time to fellowship and learn more about the word from that biblical perspective, from the Jewish perspective and things like that. And then he talked about encounter as well. And that's not just something for pastors, although we do have one specifically for that. I've been on encounter twice. I learned something new every time. And it is a big culture shock. We're there to learn. We're there to engage with them, build those friendships over time. And it is wonderful to hear what rabbinical Judaism from their own mouth and be able to serve them, volunteer, help them, show them our genuine friendship as we're building that relationship year by year. And those rabbis are now our friends and we're able to have those deeper conversations as time goes on. So that's really exciting. And then just we also have trips. Encounter is a trip. We have volunteer trips to Israel for young adults and adults. One is called Chesed and one is Origins. And so those are also things you can look into. All of this, you can go to foi.org, get involved. I've got my prayer cards, business cards. You're welcome to ask me any questions. And then one more thing is we have the Israel My Glory magazine. Has anyone heard of that before? Yes, yeah, so many of you. If anyone needs that, let me know. I can get you that subscription um, for free for a year if you are interested, either electronically or in person. And we also have things like this, 10 Reasons Christians Support Israel, and things like that. So I've got a bunch of those with me. If you have any questions, feel free to let me know. I work in Houston, so I'm here as a resource to any of you. And I'm just so grateful for your church and all that you are doing to love the Lord, stay strong in his word. So just thank you for letting me be here tonight, and I'm excited to experience this week alongside of you guys as we show up and just support and build relationships with this Jewish community. So praying for this week and to God be the glory for whatever he does this week. They have, I mean, it's just amazing when you start looking at the literature, the things that you learn. There are also, um, there's a, uh, the book I mentioned earlier by uh, uh, Chosen People Ministries to the Jew First, that would be for, probably for pastor or somebody who's been into um, uh, some more uh, in-depth uh, biblical study. But then you also have, FOI has a book on what every Jewish person should ask. And then there is another book that Chosen People Ministry has out, and somehow I've lost the page that that was on. But it is um, has has to do with uh, how to tell your Jewish friend about the Jewish Messiah, and just it's it's they've actually had this in print. They've expanded it a little bit for like 30 years, but it's very helpful. And then I've got a couple of other books that that uh, to recommend, 
But it's like everything else. It's something you learn with, with experience, and you get asked questions you don't know the answer to. And so you say, well, gee, I don't know the answer. Let me go find out. And it just takes time. But the main thing is to build friendships. Even just evangelism, period, is to build friendships with people, get to know people, be nice to them, talk to them, ask them questions about uh, their job, their work, their family, uh, their kids, uh, things like that. And you're, you're building a relationship with them. And then even if they never, ever re- respond or want to talk about uh, the Messiah, uh, you're not going to ignore them and leave them in the dirt because that's what they expect is that they're just so they exist so you can have another notch on your gospel gun. And that is just tragic that that's their impression of Christians. Well, I shot you with my gospel bullet. You didn't want to respond, so I'm going to go to the next person instead of just learning to be their friend. So we'll come back next Tuesday night, and I'll finish up on more uh, scriptural insights as well as practical insights on developing a relationship with a with a Jewish person and being able to uh, help them under understand it's not something that's going to be fast as I said it, it's something where you need patience may take a lifetime may have a lifetime friendship there so we'll come back next time tomorrow night Olivier Melnick will be here talking about anti-semitism And that will be excellent. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to reflect on Scripture, that there is a a priority, a significance to Jewish evangelism emphasized in the Scripture and the language that is used again and again, and that too often has been ignored or overlooked in the Christian community. And Father, we need to have a sensitivity to that. And like missionaries, we need to learn uh, some things that we can do so that we can become more effective in our communication, just like any missionary or any pastor uh, who's, who's helping people understand your word. And we pray that you would give us a desire to just pray, as Paul talks about in Colossians, that we pray for an open door to be able to communicate the gospel. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.